Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about The Living Daylights, starring Timothy Dalton, Mariam Dabo, Euron Crabbe, Art Malik, John Rhys-Davies, Joan Don Baker, and directed by John Glenn. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, the living podcaster. That was my more intense take of Brock, James Brock. For a more intense bond. That's right, we have the more intense bond. Timothy Dalton comes into the part for his first of two episodes of James Bond. And what's funny about this one is the three of us lived through this when Roger Moore was replaced by Timothy Dalton. This is very vivid in my mind how this whole thing went down. And I feel like we should talk about it right off the top. But I feel like I'm also going to be telling (laughs) you two something you already know. (laughs) Well, actually, I don't know the whys. I do know that it was the reason why I didn't go to the theater. I stopped. After A View to a Kill, Roger Moore was my bond. And Never Say Never Again was a poor experience. And rentals were a big thing. By the late 80s, you wait nine months a year and the movie would come out. I could do that for a new bond. So I did not see the Daltons in movie theaters. And I was aware that Dalton took over the role. I was really starting to get into entertainment media at this age and following the coverage of it. But I didn't know, and I still don't know any of the behind the scenes. To me, Timothy Dalton is what you guys describe George Lazenby as. I view him as a punchline because I remember him from the Gone with the Wind miniseries sequel Scarlet, where he played (laughs) Rhett Butler. That's true. I forgot that. He's also the bad guy in The Rocketeer, which I did see in theaters. So there you go. I guess I just didn't want him as Bond. And I also knew him from Beautician and the Beast. (laughs) Oh, come on. Oh, my God. The worst movie ever. So, to me, this is the George Lazenby punchline. It was not until he started, like, showing up on Chuck and Hot Fuzz that I had any respect for this man. But I don't know any of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff other than he was two Bonds and then his career went to shit. You guys haven't seen Flash Gordon? He was in Flash Gordon! He was the Baron in Flash Gordon! Yeah, I don't remember any Barons. I just remember winged guys and Nike shoe. Well, the story behind this is, as we mentioned a few episodes back, that he was actually offered the role, flat out for On Her Majesty's Secret Service and turned it down because he felt he was too young. They went back to him again at Live and Let Die. He said no again. And so during Octopussy, he was considered, but they were going to go with Brolin. And when it comes around again here, he wants to do it, but he can't because he was contractually obligated for Brenda Starr, the Brooke Shields (laughs) Oh, Brenda Starr. That holds a place in my heart as the first movie I ever knew about getting shelved. 
Yeah, me too. Exactly. Because around the same time, as Arnie just said, I was the same thing. I was getting into this sort of thing. So they cast a guy named Pierce Brosnan. He was fresh off of Remington Steel, and it seemed to me like the perfect casting. I have vivid memories of being really excited that this guy was going to be the new James Bond. And what a great idea. I love this guy on the TV. What a great fit. It's going to be great. And because he was cast after a three-day screen test, and it was announced that he was going to do it, interest in Remington Steel got higher. And so the reruns started getting better ratings, and so NBC had a six-day option to renew the show anyway, even though it was technically canceled. And they actually went to Broccoli and said, we can work with you, and you guys can film your thing, we can film ours. And that was when Broccoli said a famous quote, Remington Steel will not be James Bond, and James Bond will not be Remington Steel. And on the like last day, NBC decided to, because the press was so high for Pierce Brosnan and the popularity was there, they renewed Remington Steel. As soon as they renewed Remington Steel and took Bond away from Pierce Brosnan, interest in Remington Steel plummeted. And they only did like five more episodes and Pierce Brosnan essentially got screwed. But because the filming got delayed, because they already were starting to cast and everything was all set to go with Brosnan to start, the movie was pushed back two or three weeks and Dalton was then available. Brenda Starr had finished. So he left Brenda Starr like on Saturday and joined the crew of Living Daylights on like Monday. Well, I have some questions about the Pierce Brosnan thing and I have some comments on Remington Steel, but let's save that all for GoldenEye and get to the Living Daylights. That's a great idea. Timothy Dalton came into the role wanting to do a more serious take on the character, and this is the hallmark of what this movie and the next one have been talked about for years now, is Timothy Dalton wants to come in with a brand new take, and that's going to be what we're probably going to be talking a lot about today. They should have done it earlier. Every new decade needs to reinvent Bond because the times reinvent. So, yeah, I loved more back in 86, 85, but as an adult now, yeah, I want to finally get to this reinvention. I want to see what he's going to do. So, yeah, let's get into it. Arnie, you got the plot? James Bond is assigned to help KGB General Yorgi Koskov defect from Czechoslovakia. During the General's escape, Bond notices a female sharpshooter in the window aiming at the general, but Bond can tell the woman knows nothing about shooting guns, which raises his suspicions about the entire affair, so he merely disarms her rather than kill her. They smuggle the general out and deliver him to MI6, where the general reveals Russian General Pushkin has revived the program of Smirt Spirnom, Death to Spies, which includes killing some MI6 agents on a training mission earlier in the film. But the MI6 safe house is infiltrated by a Russian agent, and Koskov is kidnapped. Bond is tasked to kill Pushkin before more MI6 agents are offed, but Bond doesn't trust the events, so he returns to Czechoslovakia to track down the bad sharpshooter, who is in fact a concert cellist named Kara Milavi, and Koskov's girlfriend. From her, Bond learns that Koskov is actually working with international arms dealer Brad Whitaker. Follow me on this now. Whitaker, he's an arms dealer, but he wants to buy opium from Afghanistan, which he can then sell to turn a quick profit to use the profits to buy guns that he would then sell to the Russians for more profits. Why not just raise your rates? <laughs> I know, it's like getting your chocolate and your peanut butter, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Bond confronts Pushkin, and Pushkin reveals that Koskov fled due to embezzlement charges against him from the KGB, and the two join up in a ruse that makes it appear Bond kills Pushkin. Bond is captured by Koskov and taken to Afghanistan, where he escapes and joins forces with the Mujahideen to allow Koskov to buy the opium, but Bond would sabotage the plane, blowing up the opium and killing Koskov. The plot half works, and Bond does kill Koskov's henchman Necros, but Koskov escapes. Bond heads to Tangiers, where he confronts and kills Whitaker. Then Koskov is captured by Pushkin, leaving Bond with Kara, now performing a concert in Vienna, and then performing other acts with something else between her legs, as credits roll. So the opening sequence has this 
hey, which one is James Bond thing going for it as they have three Gaijins jump out of a plane on a training exercise on the Rock of Gibraltar? And what I found very interesting, which I did not pick up while I was watching the movie, but apparently the other two guys were supposed to look like Sean Connery and Roger Moore. Ha! Did you guys pick that up? No, I didn't. That's hilarious. I couldn't really tell who's who, but poor Lazenby. They didn't even bother getting a double for him. Eh. <laughs> That never happened. We'll talk about the wife, but never him. (laughs) What I love about the opening scene, the silly misdirect that didn't really work aside, is that we actually see Timothy Dalton on top of that truck going down the road, and we actually really feel like Bond is doing a lot of these stunts, and we haven't felt that way in a very, very long time. Ever. I've got to say, it's always interesting to me to see how they first introduced the Bond. Connery, he was at the casino smoking, looking studly. Lazenby, they cut around him. There was a lot of, like, in-the-dark silhouette kind of stuff. Make him look mysterious. Hide the fact he can't act. Roger Moore, it's all TNA when he's in bed with someone and hiding a girl in a closet. All of them sort of introduce the personalities that they have. And this one, it's him whisking around, turning to the camera as one of the agents falls to their death. Yes, this is the action bond. This is the serious Bond. This is the guy that's going to do stuff and chew on those jokes if he has to say them at all and spit them out and really be a macho Bond in a way that I don't think we've ever had. Even Connery, he played it more studly. This guy, I don't see the sex magnetism to Dalton. What I get from him is anger and fire. And I see that too and really, really like this because we talked about how For Your Eyes Only was a contrast to Moonraker in that the pendulum swung so far back the other way, they really toned down the jokes, they toned down the gadgets, but they took away what made Bond Bond. But here, we're in the mid to late 80s, when action movies were blowing up all over the place, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, we had all these action films that Bond had to compete with at the box office, and... By bringing us an action star Bond, who, yeah, he's not going to spit out the one-liners the way Moore and even Connery did, but he's going to still be Bond in a different way. This is the first time I've really felt that the new Bond is taking Bond in a different direction. Lazenby and Moore, when they started off, both felt like they were in scripts written for Connery, and Brock confirmed that they kind of were. Here, I feel it's a new actor, it's a new Bond, it's a new day, and right off the get-go, I'm liking what I'm seeing. It makes me kind of wish that he had taken the job 20 years ago for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He would have killed in that movie. True, he absolutely would have. But what we both are saying, though, I think, is a detriment at the end of the scene when he's on the boat, when the woman asks him to stay late, and he says, I'll be there in an hour, looks at the girl when she says it, and says, better make it two. That line never plays for me, because everything else that you're talking about does play for me. The intense bond is there, and I just never get that, I think Stuart said, the sexual magnetism. That's my huge issue with Timothy Dalton in this movie, particularly the scene right here, is that I don't buy that. But I do buy him jumping on top of the car. I'll be bluntly honest. I think Timothy Dalton is the ugliest man to ever take the job, and I think he has no good looks. You don't need them, necessarily. I don't know that Daniel Craig is a great-looking guy, but he sells us on what he does have, and that's how I'm going with Timothy Dalton. You're right. It is only a problem at the end of this great chase. All this stuff, climbing Gibraltar and on the truck, exploding, a few unfortunate shots of monkeys aside, this is a very solid action piece. 
that unfortunately has to end on a very awkward note of him landing on a yacht with a lonely lady and trying to pretend like, yeah, he'd actually make time for her in his day. Well, I agree that that didn't entirely play, but I will give him points. I liked the look he got on his face. I don't know that everything leading up to it made it seem like something he would do, but Dalton sells me in that moment that he's horny. What I'm not sold on is that she would be like, Oh, this random man crashed onto my boat. Let me screw him. She's probably just glad it's not more. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yes. Most particularly more at this point. He probably would not have wanted to do that, nor his stuntmen. But let me ask. I don't know that we discussed this at the time. Was A View to a Kill a hit? It wasn't a failure, no. Yeah. But it wasn't gigantic. It just feels so strange that they wouldn't need to reinvent. Because I remember A View to a Kill at least among my friends and my generation, if not myself, being a touchstone movie, a thing everyone was talking about. And so to have such a drastic change right off the bat and have a movie that does not feel of the same cloth as what's come before, usually it's reactionary when you see these kinds of changes. Here it was proactive, but I think in a good way. I think you have to work with what you're given. If... In fact, Pierce Brosnan had gotten this part and not Timothy Dalton. Maybe this movie would feel a little bit more on peace with Roger Moore. I do think that he's sort of that in-between between a Connery and a Roger Moore. I think he's sort of the right-in-the-middle balance that would give you that. But Dalton is something different, and I think that they have tailored this movie for what he can do. I think its starkness matches his starkness, and I'm happy to go with it. I'm happy to see where this takes me. This is a great opener, and I want to see more. I didn't remember Living Daylights from having watched it on VHS back in 1987, 1988, whenever it came out. But as an adult, this is exactly the kind of bonds that I want. I'll be honest, it reminded me of Daniel Craig. It's exactly right. I mentioned that very comment when I reviewed Quantum of Solace in a very early episode of Now Playing, where I actually talked about Living Daylights and how this characterizations. Timothy Dalton was 20 years prior, and at the time, many people didn't really care for the rendition of Bond as much as you and I and Arnie are seeming to like it now, and people were accepting Craig in the 2000s because of it. It seems to me that Timothy Dalton was onto something, because he actually went into the part saying this to the producers and the writers and things, and after he was cast again, they retailed the script for him, and as we'll see in the next one too, they found his strengths. And that's what's going on is they really wanted to go on that journey with this man to make it more down to earth and more serious and much more intense. But Arnie, you're saying why didn't they copy A View to a Kill? They might not have done it in tone and in story, but they definitely did it with the theme song. Yeah, when I heard that, that was a real aha moment. But <laughs> Look, I'm going to just put this out right now. I'm going to just head off the pass here. I've never owned a Duran Duran album. Never once. Never bought any of them. Didn't buy Rio. Didn't own a 45. Nothing. I had all three cassettes of AHA that came out in America. I am a fan of AHA. I like this band, and I love this song. Well, I'll take you on on that one. Oh, wow, Arnie. <laughs> You're going to work Sun Always Shines on TV in there somehow? I'll, I'll be impressed. No, because I've never heard of it. Oh, come Agreed. on. That was their other hit. <laughs> there was another hit? There were one hit wonder to me. They had two. People forget about Sun Always Shines on TV. I don't know why. It's a good one. Because they were a one-hit wonder, and this was not one of them. They weren't. They were a two-hit wonder. 
Not according to VH1, who has featured them on their One Hit Wonder show. I'm telling you, the second album was better. Scoundrel Days, Cry Wolf, I know this band, and I think this song is good. I know it was a very contentious song. I know that they looked at other artists, like Pet Shop Boys. I know that John Barry did not get along with this band, and that it was something that everyone walked away with bad feelings about. But hey... A View to a Kill was a great song, and this one comes close. I love the strings in this. I love the whole vibe. It was a big hit in Europe, of course, but not in America. But I can see why. I'd much rather have something like this than a copy of Rita Coolidge or Sheena Easton. I definitely didn't want to go back to another soggy ballad. Well, I agree I like the song, though. It's catchy. It is no A View to a Kill, but... It's a good copy of A View to a Kill in that it's got that same kind of glam sound to it that I like, the Euro pop of the 80s. I did not remember this song going in, but I really like it. I will listen to it again. It may be my number two. It's right down the middle of the road for me. It's not a good one or a bad one for me. It's just there. I think it's pretty forgettable. I've heard the song more times than I care to admit because of all these years, but I really just find it pretty average we talked earlier about forgettable songs this one for me is pretty forgettable it's not bad it's just not great duran duran got there first so they get the edge but i think this one is going to be nosing it i think wherever i put a view to a kill this one will be one or two away and it transitions into <laughs> classical music from there so <laughs> this movie has a lot of different kind of musical influences all over the place yeah, we'll talk about some of the music as we go through, but the one thing I can say about Living Daylights, where it's better than A View to a Kill, is I never thought A View to a Kill worked as a sappy score ballad, and I think the way they work the Living Daylights theme into this movie really does work well. In addition to this movie having music by a band that I knew from other stuff, man, was I happy to see actors that I knew from other stuff. The movie starts off, and yeah... Perhaps Beautician and the Beast isn't Timothy Dalton's finest moment, but <laughs> it's not. I don't even think it's Fran Drescher's best moment, and that's saying something. <laughs> but we see this guy running away, and I'm looking at that face, I'm like, I know this guy. Who is this guy? And it's the one playing General Koskoff, the face, and it hit me about halfway through the movie, son of a bitch, he killed Harrison Ford's wife! Oh, yes. Jerome Crabbe has done a lot of movies and probably got the gig because he was in some of Paul Verhoeven's Dutch films. He had made a name for himself with The Fourth Man, which is a really strange and recommendable, but very weird thriller. And that's probably why he got this gig. But yeah, I guess that's his claim to fame, huh? The Fugitive. Yeah, spoiler alert on The Fugitive, by, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's really old. It's 20 years old. There I guess goes that okay. retrospective. <laughs> that in U.S. Marshals. What I didn't realize until I looked him up was he was also the bad guy from the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Oh, good to know. If you can talk about familiar faces, come on, Sala. We all oh, know him. Oh, yeah. I was so happy to see. Speaking of villains from Marvel, here was our kingpin from the Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I had that in my recent memory, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I like John Rhys Davies. I've actually met the man. He's lost a ton of weight since this period of his life. He's a very thin man now, but I'm always happy to see him. He's a fun, happy presence. And probably the last recognizable person in the cast for me is Joe Don Baker, but not as recognizable as these other actors for me. I really don't know much of his other work besides Bond. He did the original Walking Tall. The only thing I ever saw, it was a 70s vigilante movie in the tradition of Bronson and Billy Jack and those. 
I have seen Walking Tall, but what I knew him from, Fletch. Around the same sure. time, he is a big part of Fletch. Fletch is a movie I've seen more often than I can count. Maybe someday they'll do Fletch 1 and we can do that retrospective. But I immediately placed him as Fletch. But yeah, that was pretty much the extent of the cast I knew. A lot of them are foreigners who don't work as often in American film. But these are the main people. This is the first Bond movie that everyone you can point to as someone that you knew. But unfortunately, my association, even though I couldn't place what movie I knew him from, I immediately knew Koskov was the bad guy of this movie because of The Fugitive. His face was slimy to me, so when we're seeing these early scenes of him defecting and the blonde with the gun, I'm knowing there's something up. But I do love these scenes, and the way they use the Trans-Siberian gas line to get him out is absolutely inspired. It has an air of plausibility while still being funny in the way that they do it where everybody hears the sound of the pipes and that kind of blockish check guard bearing her bosom to distract the manager. Love her. Might be my favorite Bond girl of the whole movie. And I like the main one, but anybody that's going to use the art of seduction with a wrench in her hand just deserves special props. I love Rasilic Mikulas. I also like that she's a big girl. She's big boned and not like a typical svelte woman in this situation. It was cast perfectly. She acted it perfectly. And it was a lot of fun to watch. Well, I think they're playing to the stereotype of the communist woman. If you remember around the same time, Wendy's had a television ad of a East German fashion show. Mm-hmm. And it was this woman in this gray burlap outfit. And it was David. And then they should come out with a beach ball. Beach wear. And then she'd come out with a flashlight. Evening wear. And that's what I think they were going off of was that stereotype. But I do love that they play me because she goes off with the wrench. I'm like, ah, oh, she's going to hit him over the head. And then she decides to go a different way with it. Yeah, we're right at the height of the whole Reagan Cold War thing going on here. And yes, all the images they send out about Russia is how much better we have it here in America than they would have it over there. Over there, she's really, really hot or the best that you could do. And (laughs) they're absolutely playing this. Later, they do go through KGB files about female agents and it's big wrestler women and a child impersonator with an exploding teddy bear. They don't want to sell that there are too many hot women in Russia. But they do find one for Bond to spend the movie with. But this opening's great. I gotta say, this is based on a short story, right? Is this the short story component? Because this really is my favorite part of the movie. Yes, it's pretty much the exact same thing as a short story, The Living Daylights. They change a couple of details here or there, but it's basically the exact same. Down to shooting the butt of the rifle out of her hand. Yeah, I got a feeling. It's just so well done. I had to believe that this was Fleming's thumbprint. It really is. It's clicking. It's very fast-paced. It's exciting. It just keeps moving. I kind of think that's a summation of the movie, though, because this isn't a movie that sits around for very long, unlike some of the previous arduous bonds. We get back to MI6, and instantly we have this kidnapper come in and really start another exciting fight. Yes. Yeah, 
This is Necros, the henchman who strangles people with his Walkman headphones while playing the same song. <laughs> Throughout the movie, we'll find out he plays the same song every time he has his headphones on. Either he has one cassette or it's his mood music to kill people. Hey, I, I knew a football player who would only listen to Escape Club's Wild Wild West to get pumped up before a game. So who's to judge Necros? <laughs> this is my killer song. It's rock and roll era, people. It's MTV. They do want to keep the rock and roll here going. If they thought they could get away with making the challenge an electric guitarist in a metal band, they probably would have done that. They wanted to keep the young kids interested by pumping the rock and roll. So they've updated the omnipresent blonde henchman. We've seen this guy since Red Grant and from Russia with Love, and now he got a Walkman that he kills people with. But it's the same dude. I didn't realize how many times they played this card of muscular, scary blonde guy who is the henchman. But this is the rock and roll 1987 version. Here's the thing that I would wonder, though, is, yeah, they'd played this card before, but Brock, do you know if they happen to try to get Dolph Lundgren for this role? They did not try to get Dolph Lundgren for this role. Because it felt to me like since Dolph Lundgren was cameoed as a Russian KGB agent previously, that this would have so been perfect for him in a post-Rocky Four world. He did He-Man this summer instead, Arnie. He had things to do. I liked him too, but I think it's too small a part for someone like Dolph Lundgren at that point. He was trying to go for starring roles. But what I found very curious is when he infiltrates this place to get Yorgi out of there, we have a fight with him and a random security guard, not Bond or a main character. And we have this extensive fight in the kitchen, which is enjoyable to watch. But I found it really odd that we spend so much time with this guy, not against a main character or someone we've met before. I don't think I've ever seen that before in a James Bond movie. Yeah, Bond just barely gets out of there. They're in the safe house. They're questioning Koskoff, and the second they walk out, in comes this guy that purports to be the milkman that's really there to bust Koskoff out. Like you, Arnie, I just suspected that Jerome Crabbe had to be the villain. So even though I think they did a good job of misdirecting us, I knew that as they were, quote-unquote, stealing him back, this was all part of the plan, and that what he had informed Bond and the others about was the misinformation. I knew that, and yet I still was appreciating this. Your point, Brock, is very valid, though. I would have thought that Bond would have gotten into this fight, but it is just with nameless British guys who are no match for Necros. But I do like how this all ties into the pre credit sequence, because I was wondering what the point of the pre credit sequence was. It never really had a resolution, and now we get to see that it was tying into this and that it's part of the big ruse. It's one of the better ways to make the opening action sequence really tie heavily into the plot without being overly overt about it. Yeah, it's one of those times I consider like a more of a subtle one as opposed to a direct connection. It certainly is directly connected, Arnie, but it's not the point of the opening sequence, which is why I enjoy the connection. The only thing I think they could have done to maybe make that tie a little bit better is Necros could have been the assassin that killed the other double O agents. It would have established him early as a bad guy, but then again, it would have forced Bond to not get the bad guy at the end of the sequence, which I think we all wanted to see Timothy Dalton do something. It wouldn't have been satisfying to see the guy get away. It's the wrong foot to start out on if you're trying to sell a new actor as Bond. But what I didn't expect is for him to return to Czechoslovakia to romance the blonde. I knew the blonde would come back into it. I didn't see that as Bond's initial move after this. And really, he goes undercover for a good portion of the movie here, pretending to be Koskov's friend just there to smuggle her out while counterintuitively romancing her. Right. First of all, she's his lover, Koskov, and she believes that 
she was helping him get away. She doesn't know that he actually set her up to be killed by Bond. And Bond knows this, and because she doesn't know it, he plays along. I think that he would be done with her relatively quickly, because he's just trying to get to Koskoff and to figure out what's going on. But he stays with her because... Well, yes, she's hot, but also because her naivete might, in fact, lead her back to Casca. Yes, that's all there true, and that's how I take the movie to be. But there is people in the fan community and one of the producers of this film that see Bond actually falling in love with her in this movie. Now, I see her falling in love with Bond, but I don't see him falling in love with her. But one of the producers claims that's in the script. Did you guys pick that up at all? That Bond was actually falling in love with her while pretending to be the Koskoff friend? Well, what I would say is this. What I remembered about Living Daylights, which was not much, was that in the early press material, they made a big point of saying, Bond's going to be monogamous this time. AIDS was becoming a crisis and the whole idea of promiscuity, sexuality, they just didn't feel like this was the time to be promoting a Bond that was sleeping around. So they made her really the only Bond girl. Sure, we got a new money penny and there's a couple other females here, but by and large, this is our one and only Bond girl. I think it actually plays very, very well here because what it does is reminds me of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That one-off with that other very stark guy, this is a good comparison. This is what On Her Majesty's Secret Service would look like if Dalton had taken the role. And that means I'm really enjoying it because I like that one. And I like it even more because this guy can act. Maybe they're not in love, but I definitely feel like he's into her more than Moore was into a lot of the women he was with. I really remember that the movie we're going to be talking about next week, there was a stated monogamy agenda. I remember that from behind the scenes stuff. Here, though, I did notice that despite the dalliance on the boat, he really is only with the blonde for the majority of the movie. And it did feel like a change. But as you guys both previously stated, he doesn't come off as a ladies man anyway. What I do like, though, is how this movie's playing to his strengths because he doesn't come off as a ladies man. He also doesn't come off as particularly funny. And the movie works that to his advantage because when he's trying to get the blonde out of Czechoslovakia and he's like, we're not going back for your cello. And then jump cut, they're loading the cello in. (laughs) And then later on, he's like, I'm glad I insisted we get the cello when they're using it as a sled. He's not telling jokes, but the way it's written, the way it's cut is funny in spite of him in a wonderful way. The guy can be funny. Again, hot fuzz. But here... He's just not doing it that way. That is exactly right, Arnie. That is exactly it. If I had told you my opinion about Dalton before returning and watching this movie, I would have said he's the guy with the pissed off look on his face that just can't stand the thought of being funny. He's actually a really likable character here because they pair him with a woman that brings out that warmth, that forces him to be funny. It's the pairing that makes this work. Not only is Dalton give me a bond that I really like, But what he doesn't have is added by this Bond girl. Their pairing is the best we've seen since Tracy Bond, his wife. I can't argue with you on that at all. They're very good together. I just don't see him falling in love with her was the point I was trying to make. Because I do see the chemistry there. I do see Bond being fond of her, but actually falling in love. I don't get that from Dalton's performance. And I think part of that is what the reasons you guys are saying. And I do see a lot of the humor actually comes from other places, not Bond here. And that's intentional as well. And 
he has another line already. Uh, we have something to declare after the cello scene later in the movie that I didn't think he delivered that line well at all. He's trying, but he knows he's not Roger Moore, and he knows he's not Connery, and he's not even trying to be. He's definitely trying to do something different, and it's working. It's working great, and I agree with you both. The chemistry between her and him is just fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I actually thought the nothing to declare joke worked. The only joke that made me groan, and it felt old even for its time, was the rocket-firing ghetto blaster. I have a very distinct memory of sitting in the theater with my mother in 1987 watching this movie, and when Q hits that line, the ghetto blaster, my mother laughs like I haven't heard her laugh that well since. She thought that was the funniest thing. It's an old person's joke, Arnie. You're absolutely right, but people love it. It's a very popular Q weapon. For not even being a major Q weapon, it's one of the most popular ones in the fandom. It's the strongest differentiation between him as Moore is how averse he is to one-liners. And yeah, when he's given to them, he doesn't play them as well as Moore did. He can't compete on Moore's level. He's not trying. I'm appreciative of that. There's a groaner at the end, too, where he kicks the bad guy out of the plane and quote-unquote gives him the boot. I'm like, oh, just leave that on the cutting room floor. You're not funny. You're only funny in situations. They put you in funny situations, and it works. And that's what I'm loving here. But I like this bond. I like this bond, girl. I like where we're at. I'm very, very happy. Can I just say, though, with that give him the boot line, I actually enjoy seeing him spit these lines out. It's not funny, but his performance is something I'm enjoying watching. The way he's just like Clint Eastwood, just so pissed off and saying these lines. <laughs> well, I appreciate that he didn't nudge you in the ribs. You could see it in the almost eye-rolling delivery that he knew these were bad. It came out like he's not saying it to be funny. He's not saying it to be charming. It's like, I'm really pissed off. I appreciate that. It helps sell me that this guy is a tough super spike. And something else I love about Timothy Dalton's Bond that I've never gotten. This is a Bond that feels influenced by the missions he's had. Everywhere they go, he suddenly knows the hotel. The hotel knows him. He knows the best eateries. No matter where the hell they are, they're in Afghanistan. Oh, there's a great restaurant. We'll make it for dinner. And he has all of this... Behind him, the toughness, the knowledge, he sells me as a super spy who's been in the business for many years. That cultured side you're talking about, that feels like pure Fleming. If you go back to the original books, that character, that bond on the page, really is someone who knows the best restaurants, who does have particulars about what he eats, what he wears, how people should conduct themselves, all of that kind of fussiness. That is, I think, the first time I've ever seen it here on the screen. And you see, Stuart, that's why I don't think that they ever would have made her an electric guitar player, because Bond at the Symphony fits this cultured Bond. Whereas if you put him in a rock concert, that would be just as bad as some of the things they tried to shoehorn Roger Moore into. Sure, and... What Stewart says is very intentional. Timothy Dalton went back to the books to study up on the character to make him more human, more vulnerable, more of the Fleming kind of Bond. And because of that M.O., the producers saw that and put it into the movie as well. They all had this mission of getting Bond back to basics, and that included going back to the more human side. So when Arnie, you said super spy, actually, he was trying to get away from that in his character portrayal of Bond. Well-rounded, I think is what Arnie was saying, is that he's hitting all of the things. He's a tough guy. He is cultured. He's not totally a ladies' man, but I'm liking this romance. I agree. He feels like the most complete 
portrait of a character that we've seen. All the other Bonds sort of dwell on what they're good at and ignore the rest, and this one feels well-rounded. A minute ago, we talked about the one-liners not exactly working. In the Aston Martin scene, he had all those gadgets, and he was trying to give excuses to Kara next to him about why the safety glass and things like that. In that situation, I felt those one-liners weren't too bad because it just seemed to fit in the way he was delivering it. It wasn't as thrown away. And I thought, we're talking about how it's a more realistic Bond, but he's still a super spy. Well, there's a scene where Bond uses gadgets in his car, and it's all about the car, but it's, I think with this Timothy Dalton version of Bond, it still works. They found a way to make the combination of classic James Bond gadget stuff with this new and realistic take on Bond work in that one scene. You see, that's the one scene in this whole movie, that one scene didn't work for me is when, like, that really poorly animated laser is cutting the car in half. I'm just like, oh, that's a bad cue gadget. It was the one time. Everything else I was going with, I was fine with the rocket-powered car. It was, like, out of Batman 66. But that laser and the use of it, it felt obligatory. It felt like they were checking off a checkbox. Gotta have cue gadgets, gotta have something sci-fi. I didn't like the keychain at all. That big gadget that he gets this one is a keychain that can gas people or blow up things. All activated by whistles. It's got some skeleton keys in it. Yeah, not my favorite cue gadgets for certain. But it's not a gadget-based movie, so I'm okay with that. If he walks past a construction site, his pants are going to blow up. <laughs> I remember at the time, my dad had one of those keychains, and we were using it all over the house. So for me, I kind of like it because it's something that I actually had in my house, as opposed to a radio-controlled cufflink or something. Yeah. And you know what I get excited about? I've actually been to Prodder Ferris Wheel when they're off romancing at the amusement park, and they're waiting for Saunders, his contact in Vienna, to get back in touch with him. I've actually been there, and it's just hilarious. I've got to say, their haunted house is actually the Disco Studio 54. That's what they use to make the haunted house at the amusement park. It's great fun. I've got to say, never had a better time at a run-down, nasty amusement park than that one. It's nothing like the movie wants to sell it to you. It's all rusted and gross and anachronistic. It's always fun when you see things that remind you of your past. And this one's just working for me in that way. I like where we're at. I like the time. I think we all are saying we feel connected because we were alive and going to movies at this time and aware of the world at large to some degree. This movie is successful partly because we are the age we are and we saw it back in the day. And it's a piece of nostalgia that's also good entertainment. But question for you. They decide to assassinate Saunders at this time. We're established the big bad is in Tangiers at this point. Joe Don Baker is playing a arms dealer, and we're finding out that he has been the one to get Koskov out. They're working together. It's a little nebulous, but they're working together to create the impression that the Russians have activated an old spy program. Death the Spies. What's the Russian name for it? Smurt. Spionum. Yeah, I think the Fleming novels always called it Smirsh, but in 1987, you can't call nothing Smirsh because we'll think blue with white hats hopping around. La la la. I would have been really confused by that crossover if they were talking about Smirsh. But they're activating Smirsh. They feel like the way to really fully sell this is to kill Saunders. I was confused by this scene, even more so that he's killed by a glass doorway. This scene just gets Bond to the point where he goes after Pushkin, finally. Instead of wasting time with Kara, he goes to get Pushkin and eliminate Pushkin. They're trying to push Bond to kill Pushkin for them. Killing Saunders is functional. 
always these henchmen, these aides to Bond, they always feel like they're here just to make one thing happen in the plot and then they must get killed. I kind of like Saunders. Some of these ones don't have characters, but he's this by-the-book guy. He's always been nagging that Bond doesn't play by the rules, that he shows up late, that he leaves him behind at key moments. I liked his sort of even more dour than Dalton kind of vibe. And even the little henchmen, even these throwaway parts, are playing better than the last several films here. I can't say that I missed the guy or cried when he got killed, but I do feel like, hey, they've made it memorable. And I really want to see where they're going to go next, where this show is going to take us next because I can say this much it feels meandering like at the moment and scene by scene I'm really enjoying it but I can't say that I can really understand what the whole point is Bond is trying to find Koskoff and we don't know what Koskoff wants we know that Koskoff wants Bond to kill Pushkin but why even at the end of this movie it's a little nebulous to me Well, yeah, I think it's just to get Pushkin off his back. I can't say it feels meandering. As far as the henchman goes, I thought he was another good foil to Dalton. I love the scenes earlier where the need-to-know basis information lines and things. I think the two of them play together very well, too. So I was sad to see him go just because he had good on-screen chemistry with Dalton. I agree with that completely. I think he really worked well with Dalton. I do have one question about the Ferris wheel scene right around the same time as that guy gets killed. They screwed in the Ferris wheel, right? That's what we're supposed to get? No. Just made out. Oh, they just made out? They didn't screw in the Ferris wheel? Not that I got the impression of, no. I wouldn't have thought that that would have been appropriate. He screws on a boat, he screws on a sub. You probably would end up with gum in your ass crack. I've been on that (laughs) Ferris wheel. Not clean. I just thought that was where they consummated their affair. But it was a little bit implied, so I didn't know if I was reading into it. I wanted to get your... I don't think it's that kind of bond. Maybe Roger Moore would have, because there would have been another girl waiting for him in Tangiers. But this is the girl that we're going to follow the entire movie. This story plays so much better, the fact that they don't have to write other girls in and out of here. Sometimes that can be the biggest headache, is how do we stick another new girl in here? They don't need to. This one is good enough for the whole movie. Stuart, a second ago you said the plot is a little nebulous here in the middle, and one of the things that really could have helped it was the original idea of the KGB head, Pushkin, was supposed to be General Gogol. Mm. And all of us know who General Gogol is, and so if the actor was available, he was too ill, they couldn't insure him, so he had to be off the movie. That's why he has a cameo at the end, instead of having a major role. If he was able to do it, I know for a fact that I would be able to follow who he was, who Pushkin was, and why he's important easier because he's a familiar face and a familiar character. And so many new names and so many facets going on, it could get a little confusing. If one familiar face is in there, it could have changed the whole thing. Yeah, Gogo, we do know, having watched this as a retrospective, I didn't know him before we started this Bond series, but having seen him several times, it's funny to me. Sometimes he feels like the bad guy in For Your Eyes Only. He's the bad guy that's going to come and get that little machine, and sometimes he's actually the good guy that shoots one of the bad Russian generals in Octopussy. He's a character that's malleable, that could play to whatever you wanted to do here. I would have enjoyed seeing him here over Pushkin. It's mentioned that Pushkin is his replacement, but you're right. We don't have any feelings about Pushkin, and Bond finds out that he's having an affair, and corners him and they staged this assassination I would have liked all of this a lot better it would have just been a much more quicker in if it was our good friend Gogo. Exactly and I love the scene 
when he confronts Pushkin with the woman and he tears the woman down and the guard is distracted by her chest. And that whole scene, I love that intensity. And it talk about people who work well together. I thought John Reese davies and Timothy Dalton played against each other perfectly in that scene. It's the only time where I believe Dalton was tearing off a woman's clothes because he wanted to. <laughs> but then this movie takes a weird turn. It goes to Afghanistan. Didn't see that coming? I told you about it during our Rambo 3 retrospective. I forgot. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't listening, but <laughs> I was taken immediately back to Rambo 3, and I will admit that after this movie was done, I did Google to find out exactly how many 80s movies did Americans team up with the Mujahideen. Well, you have to remember in 1987, our sympathies were with the Afghan rebels. Al-Qaeda was supplied because we couldn't conceive of anything worse than the Soviets trying to take over their country. We figured the enemy of our enemy was our friend, and yeah, it plays that way in Rambo, and it plays that way here. And now, of course, with the distance and perspective of time, it's really shocking to see Bond team up with bin Laden and try to take on the Russians. But that's what this ally is when he gets to Afghanistan. They're thrown into a jail, and there is a Western-educated rebel leader who is involved in the opium trade and wants to reclaim his country. And so Bond is going to team with him. And wow, what can you say? Only in 1987 could they get away with something like this. I kind of like that Bond, after he freed him and he got captured by them and he went into that little hut with the guy and the whole thing's explained who he is, that Bond actually asks him, I want to get to the Muharjahjin, they all laugh at him. And I kind of like that Bond didn't have all the answers right there. I really like that part of the character again. We talk about how it's a more human character. That's another great scene. It shows us why. Because Roger Moore's Bond, for example, might have actually figured it out already, that this guy was the head of that group. It was a nice scene for me. I like that. Yeah, it also, this union kind of plays like, I'm sure what they were thinking at the time is, oh, it'll be like Lawrence of Arabia. It'll be like watching a Western character go native and join the local bandits. At the time, it would have seemed much more like David Lean than it does now with, wow, he's teaming up with people that he really should not. I'm not going to say that I had that problem, though. I can understand what the time is. I learned a lot thanks to my research for Rambo 3 and my talk with David Morrell. And yeah, now we look and it's kind of awkward, but it plays for of the time. I found it far more odd that he would agree to let the opium sale go through <laughs> and work it that way. But him teaming up with them, yeah, I didn't get a Lawrence of Arabia thing. What I got was a little bit of the travel log that you've talked about previously, Stuart. While we don't really spend much time sightseeing in Afghanistan, because most of the sites to see at this point in time were battle zones, it really gave me a sense of place and time and bringing that Afghan war against the Russians, the Afghan rebellion, from the headlines to the screen. So I thought it really gave it a place and a time that I liked, and it felt different for Bond. I hadn't seen Bond in the desert that often. Yeah. Yep. And even though I tend to think that really the hardest part of any Bond storytelling, I keep bumping into it again and again, is that moment right before they get to the climax. I always think it's a little bit sloppy and weird, and this is no exception. You're right. This feels like a weird, unexpected tangent. When they finally find their footing and get back to a climax in which Koskoff and Necros and all those guys are on a tarmac, and Bond and the Afghan rebels and even the Bond girl are marching in and on horses and starting a battle. This stuff is great. I absolutely love this climax. I like a lot of it, too. I had a problem with the Bond girl participating. 
for a lot of the movie and at the even parts of this scene, she's screaming for James and seems a little weak. The whole movie when she's casting about the Yorgi and seems desperate. Here she's throwing punches and doesn't seem even scared to be in the middle of a battlefield at all with these rebels versus Russians with Bond there either. It seems like she's a whole different character in parts of this scene and that's the only complaint I really have about it. It's a fair complaint. It's hard to imagine a love-struck cellist would be leading an Afghan rebellion on a Soviet tarmac. I'll give you that. That's odd. But I'm happy to see it because this stunt work is great. And when they get into the plane and do an incredible battle, hanging on giant bags of opium as they dangle out of this plane, it's terrific. Yeah, I'm loving this. It is really well done. It's exciting. It's suspenseful. It's well staged. When Bond is under the net and Necros is above the net and Bond punches through. I'm wondering what's going to happen next. Yeah, the meta knowledge, I know for a fact that nothing's going to happen to Bond, but it's just fun to watch. And it's well edited, too. I really liked that as many times as it went to the wide shots and the close-up shots, and obviously he wasn't hanging out the side of a plane, but I thought the insert shots weren't so obvious like we've seen with back rear projection and stuff. Whatever they did behind Timothy Dalton and the actor who played Necros really worked for me to keep me into the scene. I agree with you both. I think the stunt work is fantastic in the scene. The other thing I'm going to give it is I had said in one of the previous podcasts that I was surprised how rarely the iconic James Bond theme appeared in the movies themselves. We'd have it in the opening, we'd have it with the gun barrel sequence, then the rest of the movie was its own score. But here, they bring it out when they should, right here at the climax. Earlier movies should have done that a little bit more. They should have, when Bond is really doing his most extreme stuff, they should have brought out their best music to accompany it. And finally, with Dalton, they do that. I think Indiana Jones has something to do with that, because when Indiana Jones is horror, they have Indiana Jones theme. Because I agree with you. I think that's what I think of. Bond should have the Bond theme playing when he does Bond-like things. And in this movie, they do use it very well. Some movies, they overuse it because of they want to get you have that feeling of, this is classic Bond. But in this movie, they really do use it well. Yeah, I could definitely see the lure of relying on it too much. But here, when they bring it up here at the end with some of these great stunts... It just really gets me going, yeah, which is the feeling you've had for so many of these movies, Brock. And this is like my second time this entire retrospective. (laughs) You know what makes me even more impressed by all of this? This is done by the same people. This is done by the same people that did all that nuttiness with Octopussy and View to a Kill and all of that stuff. It's John Glenn and the same screenwriters and John Barry, all the same people. All they had to do was trade out a Bond, and it feels so different here. I marvel that it's under the same tutelage of the same director, because like I said, I'm getting David Lean now. When they're flying over a bridge and blowing it up, this is an epic scope that they just weren't even trying for, or at least not in the same tone, in the past decade. It's like, John Glenn, what were you doing? I guess, for your eyes only, did try for these notes. But for the most part, I take him much more seriously as a director now. But sadly, you guys describe this as the climax of the film, but when it's over, Koskov got away. Yeah, they got rid of Necros, but much like several previous other Bond films, I think they should have ended on the high note, but instead we get this final showdown with Whitaker that is just silly. Here's the problem for me. 
Whitaker never really played into this story. Whitaker, it wasn't Whitaker's story. It was a story about Koskoff. Koskoff was the big bad to me. It should have been a one-on-one with Koskoff. Koskoff gets deported. They don't even really bother with a fight for him. He's not that kind of enemy. They're going with Whitaker, the arms dealer, being heavily armored and got all of these cool weapons. The only thing notable about this villain is it's the first time I can recall Bond has faced off with an American. We've had Americans playing bad guys before, but this is the first time that America has been the bad guy. In the movies, they've been sensitive about that. They've tried to pander to us and never make us seem like we could ever be the bad guy, but this is an American villain for Bond. Good call, Stuart. They're hearkening back a little bit to classic Bond, or trying to, with the man with the golden gun kind of amusement park kind of funhouse. Yeah, not something we should go back to, by the way, yes. And I did go back there when I saw the wax statue. They're like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, and they visited this house and this house they were filming in or found for this film, and they had these soldiers and stuff, so they tailored it there. And I agree with you, Stuart, completely. He's kind of a non-entity in this movie and arguably really isn't needed as much as he's barely used as it is. And to have him here as a climactic fight is just not satisfying because we don't have no connection at all. For a movie where we're feeling connected to a lot of these characters because of how they're presented, they failed on this one because this ending falls flat because of it. Yeah, I never took him as the big bad. I took Koskov as the big bad, even though Whitaker was the one financing it. There's the scene where Whitaker starts to puss out. He's like, oh, Pushkin's getting upset. What am I going to do? And it's Koskov who's like, don't worry about it. Bond will kill him. So when the final showdown is against Whitaker, I'm like, all right, but there's still one with Koska. Oh, no, he's just being brought in at gunpoint. That was Bondus Interruptus for me. They might have been hesitant to use Joe Don Baker more because of this bias. Because if we said America was the one selling all the arms to all these other countries and they're only sub-bads to the big bad America, that might have been very controversial. They soft sell it, but in doing so, we never care about this villain. We just don't care about this scene. And coming after such a kick-ass scene, it's all the worst beside. And I'm sitting here watching the scene, and I'm like, what Q gadget hasn't Bond used? Because that's what's going to win. What hasn't he? Oh, shit, the keychain. Hate the keychain. <laughs> Which he used the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it was sort of his thing, but I'll be happy when they give Dalton something else. I thought he should have had one of those kick-ass guns. I love that BFG he had in the beginning of the movie. That gigantic sniper rifle. That's a heck of a gun. My God. But there's actually something worse than that ending. I love the Pretenders. I think they have a half dozen really solid singles from the 80s. You're never going to get me to say something bad about Chrissy Hines. But did she make up this end ballad as it played along? It literally is the most tuneless thing. Who told her to do this? (laughs) She's a rock star. Why is she trying to be a balladeer? I don't like the song either. To me, anytime there's a song, it's going to be on my songs list. This movie has two of them. One that's going to rank pretty high, and one that's going to rank pretty darn low. And that's If There Was a Man by The Pretenders. I didn't pay any attention to it. What I noted between this, the opening song by Aha, the song coming out of the headphones by Necros, I just realized, hey, they're probably selling a rock soundtrack. Music from and inspired by. But... I didn't pay any attention to it. If we're going to start ranking them, I'll pay more attention next week. (laughs) But it was bad. I fast-forwarded. I didn't listen to the whole thing. It didn't catch me enough to listen. And I do like some Pretender stuff, so this is disappointing on multiple levels. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend The Living Daylights? Stuart. 
I am shocked at how good this movie is. My memory of it as myself at that time and a young teenager was that it was kind of dull. I guess I can get that because they're going for that vibe that I love now, which is the from Russia with love vibe. They're playing up romance. They're playing up spies and intrigues. They're making a more adult, serious, action-based movie. And as a Roger Moore fan back then, it just didn't play to me. Now, I think this is going to be top five Bond. I think that this is up there with the best stuff that Connery did. And I even think it's better than the Lazenby one. It improves on that Lazenby one. The only thing I could say is it could use a little bit more of the lightness. It played well here because we have a great Bond girl. I'm concerned for Dalton because he himself isn't naturally funny and they're going to need to keep bringing him things that are going to lighten him up because he is kind of a sourpuss. But no disrespecting on what he's doing. I think he's a great Bond. I think this is a great Bond movie. A high recommend. Arnie. I agree. I wasn't sure what to expect coming into the Dalton era. I had heard bad things about him. I'd seen these movies a long time ago, but really didn't have much of a memory of them at all. And I was really impressed. This movie grabbed me from beginning to end. I think this may be my second favorite Bond film of the whole series so far. Second only to From Russia With Love. And so I remember just a few weeks ago, I said I was never going to say not recommend again. Well, this is my third recommend in the row. And it's a strong recommend. Really like it. Excited for next week and hope it can keep up the momentum. And long-time listeners of Now Playing know I'm going to recommend this movie. I recommended it during the Quantum Massage review I referenced earlier, which you can find in the archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. I have been a long-time fan of this movie. As Stuart says, and Arnie said, that Timothy Dalton kind of had a bad rep, and people didn't expect much from this movie, and the reputation of this movie and Dalton as a whole as Bond is second-rate. I have been championing this movie for as long as I can remember. Even back when I was 12 years old, the first time I saw it, I could admit then I didn't really understand all the Whitaker and the Koskov stuff completely, but I knew I liked what I was watching with Dalton. I knew I accepted him as Bond. I liked the stunts in this movie. I liked the editing in this movie a lot. I liked the music. I liked the performances. I like so much about this movie. This movie is a very good Bond movie, and I'm very happy you two are on the same page there. Strong recommend from me. This is really a great watch, and I really, really implore those people who are listening to this podcast who haven't seen it in a long time, who have that memory of it being a second-rate Bond, please go back and watch this movie, and hopefully you'll see what we're seeing, that this really is a great entry in the James Bond series. Particularly if you're a Daniel Craig fan, and god damn it, British are getting the new movie this week. You guys know Skyfall is coming out this Friday in the UK and in large parts of Europe. We're, of course, still got many more Bond movies to go, but I hope you stay with us. Nobody spoil anything on the forums. I don't want to know nothing. We got several more weeks before it comes to America, and even more weeks until we actually review it here and now playing. Good luck with that. No spoilers on the forums, Stuart. <laughs> hey, we didn't get spoiled for Prometheus. We didn't get spoiled for Avengers. This will continue the trend, I hope. Yes, there was a shorter window for people to break it. And of course, it's a Bond movie. It's not like you're going to do something that we couldn't have anticipated. But I can't wait for the new one. And I was excited by this one because it really whet my appetite for what Daniel Craig does. I want to get the Skyfall. Well, 
Also, before we get to Skyfall, eight more days till Halloween, 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 eight more days till Halloween, the living dead. That's right, I keep forgetting it's Halloween season. All this bond is just not jiving with the mood until it comes Friday, and then I'm totally in it with, yeah, all of what we're doing over at our donation podcast. We've already released all six of the classic, I'll call them classic, not all of them are, but the Romero Living Dead series, and now we're going with the official remakes. This week, it's Dawn of the Dead, the remake. The Zack Snyder one that had fast zombies and Richard Cheese music. Nice. And Max Headroom. We'll be reviewing that. There are only eight more days to donate. $15 suggested donation get you the six original Romero films. $25 donation also gets you these three remakes. Plus, we have our platinum donation series where you actually get a physical product as a thank you. Remember, your donations help keep now playing on the air. We couldn't do these free shows like all these bonds. We're doing bond two a week for all of November. We're doing three shows next week, two Bonds and a Living Dead film. We did three shows last week with Trick or Treat as an extra bonus review. We did three shows the first week of October with Cabin in the Woods. We really try to give back to our listeners because we appreciate what you guys dig deep and give to us financially. So if you enjoy the show, if you want to support the show, our donation drive ends October 31st, but... Because of Anchor Bay, you can actually thank or blame Anchor Bay, the video company, and we don't know what the hell's going on with the Silent Night, Deadly Night remake. We're going to keep our platinum donation only open to November. It's a great holiday gift. If it's something you're wanting, you can tell your friends and family, donate to Now Playing and get a physical DVD, or you can give it to somebody else and give the gift of over 200 movie reviews on a DVD. You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. The Platinum Donation Series only is available till November 30th, and the Living Dead donation drive does end on Halloween Day, so if you want those films, head to nowplayingpodcast.com for all the details. You have eight more days to donate for those. And if you want more Bond, you want to hear my review of the Living Daylight short story, head over to Books and Nachos, where Stuart and I are reviewing all the original plumbing works there. And of course, please go to our forums and Facebook and Twitter to discuss these movies and their donation movies with other listeners like yourselves. So next week, we'll be talking about Timothy Dalton's second and last James Bond outing. Now playing will return with License to Kill. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. 
The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. So, yeah, let's get into it. Arnie, you got the plot? No. (laughs) Oh, I was on mute. I'm sorry. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Here I am. I'm like, I'm reading and you start interrupting me. I'm like, what the f***? Yeah, I'm so glad somebody said something because I was just like, wow. I'm I'm like, I'll let him him find it. (laughs) He's getting centered. I loved how in your summary that it wasn't Whitaker, it was Joe Don Baker. Who cares what his name is? We just call him Joe Don Baker. <laughs> Sometimes an actor is that. You, it, it, I never see them as their character. Christopher Walken, I, I think. Was his his name. name isn't Joe Don Baker? No, his real name the is actor. Joe Don Baker. The actor's name is, but oh. his character's name is, is Whitaker. Oh, let me redo do that line. Let me redo oh all God. those lines. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Now playing will return with License to Kill. Flash! Ah! Oh.